Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the latest edition of the Woke Worlds. Of course, I'm your co-host, Big Waz, a.k.a. Wazzy Lambray. We took a break last week to get our house in order. Unfortunately, Nando's still on break. <laughs> but, but we got, man, uh, our resident Woke Bro, man. This guy, this guy <laughs> is part of what we do around here, man. Daniel Bestner, what's popping, brother? What's up, Waz? Thanks for having me. Thanks for having um, me. I appreciate listen, it. Listen, this is we couldn't have you at a more exciting time, <laughs> to be honest. Um, you mentioned that you you had to go grab a suit. Tell the yeah. people why you needed a new suit, DB. So uh, I'm going to be on Bill Maher uh, on Friday. Uh, wow. This will be released, I think, Thursday. So yeah, so tomorrow, check it out. And I, I didn't have a suit, so I had to go buy a suit. Well, this will be released on Friday. But oh, so still, day of, day of. Yeah, check, so tonight. Watch. Check that out. Yeah, I. you know what's so crazy, man? Back in the days, that used to be my entire political diet was Bill Maher. This would have been like Barry I've been watching years. it since Politically Incorrect. I mean, wow. I don't know if you remember in the 90s, like it was one of the first um, political shows I've ever been on. And I'm, I'm on with Glenn Lowry. So oh my goodness. yeah, my buddy Glenn Lowry. <laughs> so it'll be, it'll be, uh, it'll be a fun one. Glenn Lowry, black conservative iconoclast. Yes, definitely um, iconoclast. Um, definitely, you know, he, 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 is he still an economist? Do you ever lose your, your stripes as an economist? Like, could so you ever he's not a, be a historian, DB? So he's really, you you know, he was like, had a liberal turn in the 90s and 2000s. And it's really like post BLM that he has gone conservative. But yeah, no, he's an economist. He's like a, you, he, I believe, developed the term social capital. Wow. Like, yeah. So, so I, at some point, and I, I don't think I'm wrong, he was like maybe going to be a Nobel Prize winner. You wow. Know, like, so he's okay. So he's like hardcore. No, he's like a math, a math economist. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then, and then he did like popular writing and stuff. No, but he's like a real deal economist. Yeah. That's, that's ill, man. I'm very happy for you. Um, that is probably the biggest boomer political show. Um, I'm going to convert exists. them all, man. They're all, they're all going to be socialists <laughs> by the end of the episode. I'm setting that as my goal. How does, um, how does that happen? Does somebody like, do you just put out shit in the nation and literally that's it? Show yeah, bookers it, are just like, yeah, we need to have this fool on. Yeah. Yeah. I think it, it's literally just if, if someone catches your article, uh, I think it's, it's really that random. And, and then I think you, you probably have to have a bit. If it was my first article or second mm -hmm. article that they were interested in, I mean, I don't but you have a book, you're a freaking yeah, yeah, yeah. Professor. I'm like, tenured. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the I'm tenured. <laughs> yeah, if I could say what I want. <laughs> <laughs> this is, this is incredible, man. I'm I'm really happy for you. Uh, the baby is almost here. Um, this <laughs> yeah. is this is this is just a big time for you. But we got you up here. Danny, because your latest article in the New Republic um, is called A Bad Breakup, The Discontents of Frank Francis Fukuyama, uh, where, you know, I feel like this dude's essay, The End of History, um, is not something that I was very conscious of, but within my own sort of political diet, if you will, within the last, I want to say like 18 months, it's really been coming up. I think a lot of people 
I think what a lot of people were responding to is the sort of failures of the liberal regime during the COVID epidemic, where it's just like anything could fucking just, just break this house of cards, right? And just this idea of liberalism's inevitability and it's, you know, it's clearly the, the best way we could be doing anything. I think a lot of people... Um, sort of looking back at, at that uh, concept and critiquing it. And just before we even get into that essay, The End of History, um, could you explain who this dude is? Yeah, for sure. So he started his career at a think tank, uh, the Rand Corporation, which we've spoken How do you about. Start your whole go. life at a think tank. That's crazy. That's uh, he. I, he was actually a PhD. Uh, he okay. was a PhD, I believe, in Harvard from in political gotcha. science. Okay, so that's how you get yeah, into yeah, yeah. a think tank. And so, gotcha. and, and so that was a real viable career path, particularly in the seventies. So uh, he he starts in the late seventies. He basically just writes about uh, Soviet Union particularly in the Middle East and what's now called Southwest Asia, Afghanistan, Pakistan, mm. uh, kind of moves towards writing about Soviet policy and what was then called the third world, what's now called the global South. Uh, and then wrote this and really- well, Just, just, just sure. so people are clear, it's not just that he's writing about Soviet policy. It's like in, in contrast to the West, right? Like, I feel like Danny, like if, when, whenever you attack a, a, a subject, it's like, all right, um, Whatever its historical context is, we're kind of talking about that, but it's not like in context with cancel culture. You understand what I'm saying? Like there's right. nothing, yeah, there's nothing a- that you're sort of weighing it against, whereas his studies are weighed against what we're doing here in the West. Right, and I think that's a that's a really important point because w- what people are arguing when Fukuyama basically comes of intellectual age, people like Henry Kissinger is the most mm-hmm. famous he was essentially saying that the Soviet Union was not as earlier generations has said, like this, this ideological enemy that you, you, it wasn't bent necessarily <laughs> on, on dominating the world through communism, but that it's kind of a normal great power. It wanted resources. It wanted security, et cetera, et cetera. And that's why you could do something like detente with the Soviet Union. This is why mm-hmm. Kissinger is behind detente, which basically means lessening of tensions because the Soviet Union is a normal power. What Fukuyama says, and this is in line with what Reagan said, um, is that actually the people in the 50s and the early 60s were correct. The Soviet Union (laughs) is an ideological power. It does have a world-spanning goal, and that is to spread communism. So the emphasis on ideology is important because Mm. Fukuyama becomes this big defender of liberalism. And so he was, as you were basically saying, he counterposes liberalism with Soviet communism or Bolshevism. And this is what he does in the 80s until he writes this piece, The End of History, and we could get into it. Yeah, so just so before we go on, I feel like in order, I, I, like everybody who's listening to this um, knows that you and I are sort of both materialists, right? And so just outright, we reject the notion that the Soviet Union is acting in like some idealistic fashion, like, they're adhering to some strict communist or definitely not socialist um, tendencies. There's no, I, I feel like there's no actual evidence 
that would suggest that this were true, that these people were so idea ideological in their thinking and in their actions. Um, just I, off the I bat, I disagree right. with this homie. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think that's right. I think, you know, when you look at their archives, they, they discuss communism and they discuss ideology, but the question is what is really driving events, right? If like you, people say a lot of shit, I say a lot of shit, yes, but you know, exactly. what's actually driving my, my life choices, right? And I, yeah. and I think if you look at what the Soviet Union was doing, a lot of it, not all of it, but a lot of it is just typical great power stuff. And I, just to, to bring it to today, I think you could say the same about China, right? I don't think China's really 100%. bent on ideology. Yeah. This it, like I don't even see how you can make the counter argument that China is invested in awakening the, the working classes of the world. Right. That right. It's, ridi even... it's ridiculous. It's like <laughs> it's ridiculous to even say and to and, even say yeah. it out loud. Yeah. It just doesn't make any sense. Like when the Soviets invade afghanistan are they like trying to bring global communism to it's fucking afghanistan it's absolutely ridiculous um, <laughs> this is what people were saying because Damn. i think what i think why because america was so powerful after world war ii that it had the freedom to act ideologically because mm. it could do things like invade Vietnam and invade Iraq. And to be frank, not that many consequences blew back on people at home, particularly after the all volunteer force happened yep. and you got rid of the draft in the early seventies. So what they were doing, I think was projecting onto gotcha. another power. Got you. Um, and so, yeah, I just wanted to get that out the way. So people understand like what this guy's sort of MO is. And so he, that's the context within which he's writing this paper. It's like the, you know, and again, this is, this is what think tanks exist to do. I think that's important to explain to the audience. Like these guys exist to come up with ideas about how the world works that people that actually push the button on these decisions, we'll actually read these papers. We'll actually be briefed on these ideas. Yeah, and especially Fukuyama. I think this happens uh, still today, but it, it happened a lot in the 80s. He actually, in the 80s, moved back and forth between the think tank and the State Department. Wow. Okay. So when he wrote The End of History, he was actually at the State Department, but he had been at Rand, he had been at the various parts of the government. He goes back and forth. So this is the sort of revolving door thing. And as far as I know, I, I, I'm not 100%, but I'm pretty sure he never went to the government after the end of history because once you become famous wise, you and I know. What's the You want to go to the club. You know, you want to go to Musso and Frank's. You know, there's, there's you wanna, absolutely no reason to yeah, be schlepping to DC. Yeah, yeah, that's ridiculous. Yeah, it's ridiculous. So so he became like this celebrity. But we, we could get into the end of history where whatever way you want to take it. No, no, no. That's that's what I want to get into. Uh, could you just explain to the people the argument that was being made uh, within this paper? And why, and why do you think this argument resonated with so many people in the chattering classes and just became so influential? It's a good point. So the article is called The End of History? Question mark. So the first thing is that by history, Fukuyama didn't mean that things that happen in the world. <laughs> right. Um, he was using it in kind of a That's a provocative uh, uh, sort of uh, like a title, honestly. It's yeah, it's a, it's, a it's a great title, you know. Yeah. Uh, a, a mentor once said, if you're going to make an argument, anything worth stating is worth overstating it. So it's one of those mm. sorts of claims. So just a, a very brief two-second yeah, uh, 
two second thing. So there was a philosopher in the early 19th century called Hegel, George Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel, and he argued about capital H history and how history moved. Um, and Hegel argued that it was a series of ideas, the capital I idea that came together. And Marx actually was, as I'm sure you know, he basically famously, quote, turned Hegel on its head by saying it wasn't ideas that mattered, but it was material relations, but it still mm -hmm. functioned in a similar process. So that's the way that Fukuyama is using history as sort of this grand human movement. And what he essentially said was that the 1980s demonstrated that even the communists were accepting liberal principles. The communists mm. were accepting that free markets were good. The communists mm. were accepting that you needed to give some political freedoms. Famously, this is Glasnost and Perestroika and the Soviet Union. So mm. even before the Soviet Union collapsed, what Fukuyama was saying was that basically everyone accepted that liberalism and liberal ideas had won. Right. This the, they won the great battle for ideology, can, and that's can what I ask he. You a question that that nobody ever seems to um, explain to me: Why is liberalism so connected to this concept of free market and free trade principles? Why are they so tied at the hip, and why why do people? who are, you know, they just believe in naked, unvarnished capitalism. Why are they the only ones who get to sort of cleave themselves to um, this concept of civil liberties and social freedoms? It's a great question. So the way that I like to think about it is that in the 19th century, you know, we're Marxists, the Industrial Revolution happened. That was a big deal. It totally mm -hmm. reshaped human capabilities, right? You, you you were able to produce more calories. You were able to produce more goods, et cetera. You're able to travel. Some faster. people might argue that's why we had the Civil War. It's just oh, like, definitely. Oh, definitely. yo, bro, right. we got to start doing things a completely different way than we do them right now. Sorry. Yeah, right. And, and so one of the arguments, the classic arguments that were made is that like the slave South was was an atavist, atavistic, right? It was in the from the past. And mm -hmm. so if you look at the first 70 years of U.S. history and the first few presidents, for example, Washington, Jefferson, not Adams, who's from the North, but a lot of them are from like the planter class. Uh, and so over the course of the first half of the 19th century, the North, the quote unquote North becomes more powerful because it's industrialized. So that's just a microcosm of what's happening all across the world. So in the 19th century, you got uh, in response to those material changes, uh, a series of ideologies rose up, Merge. one of which was liberalism. Another one was communism. You might consider like the reactionary right that morphed into fascism to be another one. And these were basically all responses to how you deal with this huge transformation in human life and society. And so what liberals argued is that the best way to encourage human flourishing is through this freedom, right? And freedom has various sort of valences. There, there's something called positive freedom, and that's freedom to do something and that's something called negative freedom freedom from something for example okay. the government and in the american context it's really that negative form of freedom that has predominated since world war ii 100%. i think because the nation is so rich that the mm. nation was so traditionally rich that it was able to basically have emphasize freedom from things are changing now because we're becoming more like other countries and inequality has increased so much. So that's what Fukuyama, just to bring it back, means by liberalism and means by history. Got you. And because, okay. And, and so I understand that these ideas 
of liberalism emerge out of an already sort of capitalistic society. It, capitalism just is, and so therefore this is how we are just going to manage it. Whereas these crazy sicko communists are like, no, why don't we do capitalism another way? So, so I think this is a crucial point because Marx actually said you needed capitalism. Mm. So th basically everyone on all sides says you need capitalism because it was capitalism that basically did the huge shoot up on the graph where you're now producing much. You're able to produce more calories. You're able to produce more goods. You're able to travel, blah, blah, blah. The question was, how do you deal with capitalism? Mm. And Marx and the socialists and the communists were like, you could actually control it through human action. You could centrally plan. You could predict mm. things. And the liberals were like, no, the disembodied hand of the market is going to manage things. Now, these are all very like ideal forms. There's a lot of variations, but sure. at their base, this is what the different ideologies are saying. Okay. And so Fukuyama, of course, he's, he's coming out of the liberal ideology because, and you know, and you know what this reminds me of, DB? It, it reminds me of me when I used to root for Michael Jordan and the Bulls in the <laughs> 90s. It's, it's like this idea that like, well, Michael Jordan's the best. The Bulls keep winning championships. Obviously, this is the only way that this could ever get done. Never mind when some other psychopath maniac comes along and wants to punch his teammates in the face and do other things. It's like, ah, I don't know. Maybe that like kind of worked for Jordan, but that doesn't seem like, it seems like when you're making this argument, it's just like, we've won. And so this is the right way. And anybody who doesn't understand that kind of will not recognize the victory. So this is really interesting because there's a lot of the end of history essay that is like that, where it's like, yo, we won. We, we fucking won. But it, <laughs> what's really also interesting is that there, there's sort of a melancholy in the essay because Fukuyama, like actually like a lot of others, he wasn't alone in this, thought like communism was more vital. It, it was more romantic. It, it was a greater mm. cause. Like liberalism is like what you're going to technocratically determine who gets what. There's a bloodlessness to it. Yeah. Hell so yeah. it was interesting because what I think Fukuyama was unconsciously doing was he was lamenting the end of the Cold War because mm. it was only in the battle with an ideological enemy that liberalism was not bloodless, right? Mm. That liberalism was able to really call yeah, for Yeah, you had great. something to sort of galvanize or organize around was this defeat of this other thing. If that other thing doesn't exist, what do you do? retreat into, you know, collecting PhDs and trinkets? Like right. Or, or <laughs> what you do, know what you do, you're like the finance bros in the city, right? You, you mm. pretend you're conquering Rome when you're moving fucking numbers around, right. right? You you need to feel that vitality and that romanticism. And Fukuyama was like, oh shit, that's going to go away now. And I don't think he was wrong. You know, I think, I think there, we, we, we do all feel alienated. There is sort of a legitimation crisis in American society. And that's because liberalism doesn't provide meaning. Uh, it doesn't provide one with a grand project. There's a lot of other reasons for that. Um, there's a lot of other reasons for the ennui. I mean, it also makes things really unequal. But, you know, like who's going to die for liberalism? I, I, I sure as hell <laughs> Jonathan Chait sure might. Maybe, um, maybe but... my friend Jonathan Chait. <laughs> but, that. but, you know, and, and again, in, in, in reading your sort of essay, which, by the way, you're talking about a, a newer paper in your autograph where he's kind of like, it's the Chait thing. It's like liberals 
are classical liberals are sort of, they feel very defensive of their project, right? right. Um, in the face of the obvious problems of the right. world and in the face of no real competition anywhere to speak of and, you know, liberal hegemony everywhere, there are all these problems. And like Jonathan Chait, Fukuyama decided that, no, we need to, we need to defend the project. This was clearly the best that could have ever been done. Right. And, and, and I think an important thing, which I'm sure you've come across through in, uh, uh, you've come across in your own life is that there's sort of people say it's mature, right? Like it's mature oh, to yeah. embrace the centrism. Limits. Centrism is the mature thing. When, when you have ideals, when you have hopes and dreams, you're a loser, dreamer, right. unpragmatic. Right. Um, when you want to just, you know, uh, just stay stagnant um, forever or even retreat backwards, you know, centrists will also be like, there's something fundamentally wrong with you. Like you're an unserious person if you're sort of reactionary conservative as well. But absolutely like any centrist that you talk to, like, I remember people just being like, well, Bernie's ideas are fucking stupid because yeah. guess what? They love Joe Biden. You fucking idiot. Don't you see that people love Joe Biden? I'm right. like, eh, right. all right. <laughs> well, it's and a very Joe limited imagination. <laughs> it's kind of funny because one of Marx's biggest warnings was that we can't let capitalism control us. We've got to control capitalism. And when mm. people make arguments like that, they're basically saying human beings have no agency. Mm. That capitalism is, you just got to do what capitalism does. Uh, it's kind of the, the metaphor I use is artificial intelligence. It's people today treat like treat it like Skynet has become self-aware. There's no way to control this thing. It's just going to do. And that's a very, I think, depressing and, and fundamentally incorrect understanding of how the world works. And, and, and I'll say this about centrists and liberals as a whole. I feel like all of them, by and large, live very comfortable lives. <laughs> and so, like, a disruption to that seems insane and unserious. I understand that. Like, materially, why would you want your great life to be disrupted by some people that might want to hit the streets, might want to fucking riot over right. some health care, might want to burn the trash in Paris and, and, and not let things, you know, and, and bring some disorder to everyday life? If you're some fucking professional who has a nice life, and you, you know, the things that you worry about is shit like, I don't fucking know, um, whether you're saying the right pronouns to people or not, not to say that you shouldn't try to do that, but if that's your biggest worry in life, I understand why you don't want things disturbed. That's like, the way that I view it is do, do liberal programs involve liberal elites giving up their money? No. And the answer is always no. And so, again, this is the importance of having a material view of things, because right. if they're not giving up their money, then someone's pulling the wool over your eyes. Not 100 percent, but just as a rule of thumb, if they're not giving up their money. They're not really interested in change. And I think that's right. And so, OK, just to get into the, the main potatoes of what this guy's saying in this in his argument. And, and this is what I want to get into with you, because I think it's kind of interesting. And you've talked about this on your show. You've talked about it on ours. And the reason why he's like the end of history is just like not only is liberalism dominant, like the idea that what they're doing in China and Russia 
for instance, even though I don't, I, 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 I reject that, that these are um, sort of counter ideologies. I completely reject that as, as just, it's because it's not like when China comes into, say, Africa or wherever they invest in. They <laughs> they're not spreading like, like Chinese communism. No, they're not. And it's yeah. not even just Chinese communism, GB. They don't go in and say, y'all need to do y'all government like us. Right. That's Put US, spyware in, US blah, blah, delusion. Blah. Yeah. They don't. They just straight up like, yo, we're going to get what we need to get out of this. However, y'all want to manage y'all shit, go ahead. But they don't go in and do that. So, like, just the idea that China or Russia offers some huge counterbalance. You know, I was listening to Pascal, our boy Pascal Robert, Pascal, talk yeah. about the huge investment that China's making in Africa. And he's just like, yo, it's kind of nice that, you know, um, these African nations have an alternative um, as far as business partners are concerned to the U.S. and the West. But, like, it's fucking China, you know? Absolutely. And and it's kind of funny because, in my mind, it's it's an American delusion to think that you're able to spread your ideology across the world. It's kind of a <laughs> wild belief. If you, like, take if – you, if you try to take off your American glasses – uh, and put on your sort of dead alien glasses. If you look at this, it's kind of wild that that any nation could think they could do it successfully. But what Americans have done is they they projected that onto the Soviet Union first, and later onto China. Today, onto China. Well, Danny, don't you know that the Soviet Union came down because the people wanted to wear blue jeans? They wanted Levi's. <laughs> don't don't that, that, don't you rock know and roll in Levi's? So no, but what I do want to say about that is. If the argument is like, and, and you even mentioned this in your piece, it's like if you have a group of immigrants or let's just say some refugees from Yemen, like let's just say you you really explained to them, like you really gave them a clear picture of what they could possibly do in America and what they could do in China, they'd fucking pick America. Without yeah. question. Yeah, no, of course. <laughs> of course. And I think... And that's a persuasive argument. Yeah, to be yeah. honest. Yeah, I mean, also, you one can't forget, like most nations in the world that the United States have been involved with have had a pretty negative experience. Right. Um, so, and what, what's kind of the tragedy of one of the many tragedies of American history is, like after colonization, after colonialism, a lot of um, leaders in the third world really thought the U.S. believed in its rhetoric and that they were going to help them, and this is again and again and again were betrayed. So you know, I mean, if, if the state was born in a, a, a revolution, uh, I think certain people have differing views about how legitimately you can view. That revolution, for various reasons, I think some people are just like, well, I mean, they they overthrew the fucking crown, but they were just crowns people themselves. Look at what they did to the Native Americans. Look at how they dominated the rest of the land and all the raping, pillaging, and killing that came behind it. Some people would say that this wasn't some, like, you know, they didn't overthrow some power. They were the power and just sort of replaced the management structure. I don't know. I, I don't I don't think I have a fully formed view of that. But yes, a lot of younger nations looked at America and was like, look at those people. They threw they they were a colony of the British Empire and they overthrew those folks. Exactly. And and so what Fukuyama, just to bring it back, what he was saying is that all of these nations would now become liberal. And in some mm -hmm. sense, he wasn't wrong. And we can mm -hmm. turn to talk to that now if you'd yes, like, please. because basically 
he said that everyone would become liberal, and he was wrong about that. Like, clearly, Russia's not liberal. Clearly, China's not liberal. But what he was really saying was that everyone's going to become capitalist, or at mm. least that's embedded in the argument. So Fukuyama, kind of two cheers for Fukuyama, at least in terms of him being correct, is that everyone is capitalist. Now, I, I just don't buy the argument that China is not capitalist. Wait, 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 how could you make that argument? I, people people on, the, on, the, on the left do, but I, I just don't think like they, what they do is they point to elements of the Chinese system that have communistic features. And I would agree. What with elements that. are those DB just for the people at home? There is a form of state planning, you know, they, they okay. do kind of cut off the, the heads of the billionaires every now and again. It is governed sure. by a communist party. Um, but I think that. Uh, but, there, but but to be clear, there are really poor people, even still in China, even as rich as they become. And there are ungodliness. Oh, yeah. yeah and billionaires in and, the country. And, and, Precisely. And since the 80s, Deng Xiaoping really did liberalize the economy. He opened it up to, to market features. Uh, and I would say on the international stage, China represents something called state capitalism, which is, which is a state-directed capitalism. You know, China will partic pick particular industries. The government will be heavily involved in particular industries. It's not a form of capitalism that's like, like the neoliberal capitalism in the United States. But I think it's fundamentally able to be identified as capitalism. And I think this is true of Russia. It's an oligarchic capitalism, a kleptocratic capitalism, but still yeah. a capitalism. It's true of Hungary. Um, it's, no, maybe it's not true of North Korea, but it's true of basically every other country in the world. And so and to some degree, that prediction about the universalization of some form of Western hegemonic ideology was proven correct. Um, and the interesting thing to me, and this is how I kind of end the piece, is that liberalism, as you talked about at the beginning, so obviously fucked up in so many, did not achieve its great promises. But there hasn't been an ideological response to liberalism. You know, there's been some socialist-ist policies in the United States. There's sort of the MAGA racism uh, in the United States as well. Yeah. But these are meaningfully it's it's, yeah I, I i and also like both of those i would argue contain significant features of liberalism which was always racist on some parts and always had socialist parts of it right also They're like just the idea it. like some of this shit I, I view it some of the stuff that we call conservative i view as liberal um the gun shit just just the idea that you would let a bunch of motherfuckers, a bunch of citizens just, yeah, go ahead, just have guns. That feels liberal to me. <laughs> well, it's, it's certainly individualistic. And, and yeah. stuff like that is connected to the indigenous genocide. Like China's government would not allow for that. Australia's government doesn't allow for like, it. That's a peculiar... You, Peculiar you American pathology. Yeah. They're not just gonna let a bunch of citizens, individual citizens, have the right to blow people's brains off on a whim. Like it doesn't with make any uh, sense. with automatic rifles with military. Like, that's rifles. not a thing. Like we call that conservative, but like realistically, a conservative government would have bopped these fools in the head already, took their guns, and if they tried to play around, killed them. Like it, this wouldn't it's even wild. be a. It's wild that that. This, this wouldn't is. even be a discussion, and so yeah, I guess you know, like you said, this guy was right about something different, right? But what, but to me, which I guess, um, is is at the core of it. It's like yeah, everybody's freaking capitalist, and I think um, the only thing I will say begrudgingly about 
you know, just from what I know about what we have here in America, nobody seems to want to do anything about how fucked up it is. And so maybe it's just not fucked up enough. I think the two things, this is like real 40,000 feet thinking. Cheap food and cheap entertainment goes a long way. If you look (laughs) at a lot of revolutions in particular, they usually follow food scarcity. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think if you're able, I think the American life has proven that if you're able to provide people with calories and entertainment defined however you want the 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 you know the infamous opiate of the mess is no longer religion but something else i think it goes a long way uh and i think that's a depressing thing because even people who are very poor not 100 percent by any stretch but you could always eat shitty fast food and get Mm -hmm. pack yourself filled with calories there are places in this country of course the disclaimer that are experiencing true food scarcity and things like mm-hmm. that. But overall, you're not going to get like 1918, 1990, 19 post-war Germany people starving. Right. You know, it's a different scale. Or even look, man, like people talked about the, the Great Recession, that it was the worst fucking financial collapse since the Great Depression. Like there wasn't really like widespread food lines and, 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 and like, you know, soup kitchens didn't fill up to the brim, to be honest. Obviously, people suffered. People, you know, lost a massive amount of wealth as yeah. far as, you know, wealth that was in their houses and stuff like that. That's not the same to... Um, as desolate, like as being completely desolate, right? Um, no, I mean just, the Great Depression. Different. Absolutely, the Great Depression unemployment reached upwards of like twenty five percent. You right. know, it never approached that. Um, but I think the the thing is like the primary impulses: food, sex, shelter something to do with your time are largely satisfied through the internet and things like that through tv through movies whatever it is um and i think those things really do go a long way toward preventing a revolution so what's a <laughs> so so what's a sad sack socialist communist in america to do or think or to even wonder or dream for a better existence for people um, in this country, if not this whole goddamn planet. Well, you step know, one. I know this is a heavy question, but like, no, I I have an answer. <laughs> step one is subscribe to Woke Bros, and step two is subscribe <laughs> to American Prestige. That's uh, it, and that that's the way to go. I mean, I I think the whatever the solution is, I don't have a pat one, but I think you have to look at your situation realistically as much as possible that to me is what marx and others meant by historical materialism so i I don't think anything's going to be gained by fantasies about the strength of the left or (laughs) the rising of the working classes i think you have to be extraordinarily pessimistic and cynical and from there you start identifying the social fissures the social movements whatever what have you that can begin to make real change but don't be naive don't have the wool pulling over your eyes and then go from there. Maybe in 10 years, we could talk about a more positive program. That is beautiful, man. That is Daniel Bessner. You can read his latest article in The Nation, uh, A Bad Breakup, The Discontents of Francis Fukuyama. Of course, make sure you subscribe to his Substack, American Prestige, one of my favorite podcasts on the planet. And if your broke ass got an HBO account, HBO Max, Check him out on Real Time with Bill Maher tonight. 
uh, uh, what's that? August, excuse me, April 21st. 21st, man. yeah. Uh, congrats on all of that, DB. Um, thank you for coming on with us today, bro. Thanks so much, Was. Always happy to be here. Appreciate you.